One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello. I'm Philip Coggan, author of the Bartleby column here at The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, Trump's latest Chinese trade tariffs. Have they really put the US in a strong bargaining position? Leading historian Lord Robert Skidelsky on the future of the economy. Most economists now accept that the stimulus stopped the slide into another Great Depression. But the point is it was then abandoned. And the hopes and hurdles for closer business relationships between North and South Korea. The first hurdle, obviously, that everybody has is the fact that it's still under sanctions by the United Nations and also additional sanctions by America. First, a brand new Trump tax has been announced. President Trump is imposing a new round of tariffs targeting around $200 billion worth of Chinese imports. Yesterday in a tweet, he said that tariffs have put the US in a very strong bargaining position with billions of dollars and jobs flowing into our country. And yet cost increases have thus far been almost unnoticeable. If countries will not make fair deals with us, they will be tariffed. To discuss this terrific news is Henry Kerr, our economics editor. Henry, is he right that billions of dollars and jobs are flowing into the US as a result of his tariffs? Not yet. I think it's too soon to say that. Where I think he is potentially right is that I think we're learning that these tariffs are probably costlier for China in this instance than for the US in the short run. The US economy is doing better than China's, which is slowing. Their stock market's down. China is more dependent on trade than the American economy is. That, of course, doesn't mean it's the it's the right strategy, but it, it, it does mean that he has some leverage as a result of that. And the Chinese Commerce Ministry said it had no choice but to retaliate to the second round. But it didn't specify what actions they were going to take. Henry, any ideas what they might actually do? I think China can be expected uh, to retaliate as much as they can on tariffs. But of course, there is this asymmetry that America buys from China uh, a lot more than China buys from America. As a result of that, they can't uh, mirror tariffs because ultimately the situation here is it's very difficult to see how this uh, situation unwinds. What the a report on which these tariffs were based objected to was things like Chinese forced transfer of intellectual property as a condition of, of market access for American firms in China and uh, subsidies to state-owned firms. And a lot, lots of people, everyone uh, in, in the West, basically, more or less, agrees uh, that these are uh, undesirable tactics on the part of China. But it's not the case that China is going to disrupt its whole economic model uh, in order to get these tariffs taken off. It's not clear what incremental reforms would satisfy Donald Trump. And on other days, uh, he talks a lot about things like the trade deficit. Earlier in the year, there was a sense that there might be uh, a deal based on China uh, volunteering to buy more exports from the US. It's all a bit of a mess. It's unclear what America really wants and how it, how it proposes to use that leverage that it probably has created by imposing these tariffs. Indeed, in the uh, Bob Woodward book, uh, Fear, Gary Cohn, the um, former economic advisor, says, well, I can organise you 
the elimination of the trade deficit will just have a recession. When they've just had a fiscal stimulus, when the US economy is booming, chances are the overall trade deficit is more likely to rise than fall, isn't it? Yes, it, 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 exactly. Uh, the, the trade deficit basically represents how much uh, the country is is borrowing from abroad. And if you go on a spending spree as, as America is on, you're going to borrow more from abroad and your overall trade deficit will go up. That's not to say that trade policy can't change your trade deficit with individual countries. Uh, so, of course, America, if it wanted to, could shut down trade with China and wouldn't have a trade deficit with China anymore. Uh, but the overall uh, trade balance is closely linked to those domestic economic factors. And with, with, with America cutting taxes, uh, the, the pressure on the trade deficit is upward. And that's another problem because uh, if, if America wants to uh, reduce its trade deficit uh, before taking these tariffs off, it's going to find that very difficult. One final thing, Henry. The he mentioned the costs haven't shown up to consumers as yet because they were on steel and aluminum in the first round. But when you're taxing a much broader range of goods, then it's more likely that you will start to see costs of things like iPhones go up. Sure. So uh, because these tariffs are now being expanded onto a much broader uh, range of uh, goods, they will uh, impose tariffs on some goods that are final goods that end up in consumers' pockets. Now, of course, it was always a bit of wishful thinking to say that if you tax an intermediate good like steel and aluminium, that won't cost consumers. In the long run, it probably will feed through to prices. It's just going to take a while. And of course, you're also going to harm productivity growth if you tax intermediate goods because it makes it harder for firms to organise their supply chains efficiently. But it is true that those increased prices will probably become more palpable as a result of this this latest round of tariffs, yes. Look out for it in your shop soon. Henry Kerr, thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Let us know what you think about this or any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us at Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Next, the eminent historian Lord Robert Skidelsky is perhaps best known for his three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes. He's now written a new book called Money and Government, A Challenge to Mainstream Economics. Welcome to Money Talks. What were you trying to achieve in this new book? I was dissatisfied with the way both money and government had been theorised by mainstream economics, ever since it started, really. That is, the idea that money is purely an intermediary and has no independent influence on, on, on um, outcomes, and the idea that government was simply an interference with the uh, otherwise harmonious operations of market forces. And ever since Adam Smith, really, you can find those ideas at the heart of economics, hence the title, The Challenge to Mainstream Economics. Keynes did challenge them, and there was a sort of Keynesian era when both of those ideas were, were pushed aside, but then that in turn was uh, succeeded by the restoration of the mainstream. And I think it was the mainstream that was in power, so to speak, when we got into the crisis of 2008. And many of the mainstream ideas can be found in what I would call the botched attempts to get us out of the crisis. 
So obviously, um, this is a significant debate still. Um, I mean, there was a fiscal stimulus in the immediate aftermath of um, the 2008 crisis. Gordon Brown is um, sometimes uh, attributed as being the man who inspired this sort of trillion dollar... Saviour uh, of the world. Saviour of the world, exactly. Um, so Keynes's ideas hadn't disappeared completely at that stage. No, but what had disappeared was um, the, uh, the possibility of a crash like this um, from happening. Um, when it did happen, then I think um, politicians were determined to prevent a repetition of the Great Depression. They'd learned that much. Mm. And they'd learned that it was politically far too risky to um, adopt a Hayekian solution, which was to allow the crisis to run its course, allow a lot of banks to fail, allow the economy to collapse for a bit and then sort of bound back on its own. They, they, they realized that was much too risky. So there was a huge stimulus. And I think most economists now accept um, that the stimulus stopped the slide into another Great Depression. But the point is it was then abandoned. Uh, before, before economies had fully recovered, by any means, there was a resumption of growth in, you know, in the last quarter of 2009, quite, quite reasonable growth. And then the engines were reversed and austerity became the order of the day. The very much the emphasis of the last eight years since that shift in 2010 has been on monetary policy rather than fiscal policy. So undoubtedly, there's been a monetary stimulus. But uh, you argue in the book that really fiscal policy ought to take back the um, prime driving a force for reviving the economy. Yeah, I think both both for preventing things like this from happening, um, prevention is more important than cure, really. And 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 also, if you do get into into another situation like this, then then fiscal policy should be the engine of recovery. I think monetary policy turned out to be quite weak. I think monetary policy was useful. Um, and um, certainly it had some stimulating effect, stimulating effect I think, uh, largely to offset um, the fiscal austerity. But, you know, this is again, Keynes said something very important here. He said there's many a slip twixt cup and lip. And there was a lot of leakage. Central banks pump money into the economy via, via their purchases of government debt. But, I mean, a lot of it wasn't spent. It was um, saved. And as a result, the stimulus was much weaker. And I think that took the central banks by surprise because they thought they were doing enough to hit their inflation targets, but they didn't. And, um, and, and so really the recovery was inadequate and it was also quite lopsided because the money – the way they did it went to the holders of existing assets who um, have a great tendency to save anyway. And if they don't save, they buy uh, existing assets. Now, what you describe in the end of your book, which is these um, investment programs, and indeed a national investment bank to fund it, sounds very like uh, current Labour Party policy. Do you think Labour Party policy in aggregate uh, would be good for the UK economy? Well, I think I'm very happy if anyone takes up these ideas. And as it, as it, as it happens, the Labour Party has been more receptive to them than, than, than the existing government because the existing government is to a large extent hostage to the austerity policies of Osborne. Just to throw Brexit into that mix, let's assume that you know, Labour has good policies as far as you're concerned on, on fiscal policy. If in two years' time we have a new Labour government, we're out of the EU, 
Then there are other policies involved, much higher taxes for companies, much higher taxes on executives, uh, nationalisation without full compensation in some industries, um, changes to labour laws making it you know, more expensive to hire workers. Do you think that, that those policies uh, will attract the foreign investment that Britain might need you know, when people are considering whether to invest in uh, the UK, which will suddenly have lost the links with Europe that previously made it attractive? Well, it's very hard to, to answer that, and, and the answer is we don't know. But my, my gut feeling is that if the um, sum of policies actually causes the market to, to boom, in other words, if there's more aggregate demand in the economy, that will attract um, money. Um, if, if, on the other hand, you have something, uh, an economy that's rather stagnant with, with a very, very low growth rate... Um, then anything um, of the kind you're describing will simply be an excuse not to invest in Britain. But the reason for not investing in Britain would be that the economy is, is performing poorly, not that the government policy is discouraging investment. I've, I've always thought it's that way around. When people see a market, they will spend and, and produce things. If they don't see the market, then, then um, they, they won't. And they'll always blame the government then for not creating the market or enabling the market that would allow them to invest. Yes. Um, so the government always gets it wrong. I don't agree with every item of labor policy, certainly not. But I think if you look at the um, growth of inequality, huge growth of inequality since the 1980s, that must be connected with the loss of um, union bargaining power. A much larger proportion of um, the, the, the workforce was unionized in the 70s and 80s than um, it is today. And it's still the case in Germany, where they've retained their manufacturing base much more successfully than we have. Of course, the whole purpose of uh, Thatcherism was to destroy British manufacturing in order to destroy the unions. <laughs> well, on that um, <laughs> uncontroversial point, uh, Lord Skidelsky, thank you very much. Finally, the North and South Korean leaders are together today in North Korea's capital, Pyongyang. It's the latest in a series of unprecedented meetings between the two countries. But what are the hopes of South Korean firms now that the relationship between the two is thawing? In April, Moon Jae-in, South Korea's president, and Kim Jong-un, North Korea's dictator signed an agreement in which they vowed to revive ties, including economic ones, between both countries. Lena Shipper is the sole bureau chief for The Economist. So, Lena, are South Korean businesses actually excited about these opportunities? Hi, Philip. Yeah, so there are some South Korean businesses, I would say, which are, which are very excited about the, the opportunities, chiefly among them the ones who used to operate in the Kaesong industrial complex, which um, was a sort of special economic zone just over the border with North Korea that was um, open for about a decade before it got shut down in 2016 after a missile test by the northern regime. Um, and there are a lot of people um, who, who are in these companies who are very, very hopeful that it can be reopened and they can go back and reclaim some of the equipment that was left there that they never got back after it was shuttered. Um, so they're certainly very excited. There's a, another group of business people who are not quite as excited, I would say, which are the uh, leaders of the Chebol. 
um, the sort of big South Korean conglomerates who are quite reticent initially, I think, to, to accept the invitation that Moon Jae-in extended to them last week to accompany him to Pyongyang. But in the end, they went. Um, so I guess they also see the opportunities on the other side of the border. Because it's a fabulously poor country, isn't it? It's not like it's uh, you're breaking into China or uh, some other market where the potential will be huge. Yeah, it's an extremely difficult market to operate in. I mean, the first hurdle, obviously, that everybody has is the fact that it's still under sanctions by the United Nations and also additional sanctions by America. So at present, any dream of economic engagement or business development in North Korea is illegal anyway. So un- unless proper progress is made on the nuclear negotiations with North Korea. Anything of that sort, any of the things that the Kaesong people are dreaming about or that Moon Jae-in is dreaming about are just not going to be possible. Um, but even after that, there are lots of hurdles. You know, private property is technically still illegal in North Korea, so you wouldn't really know how to protect your property rights once you were there. There's all sorts of terrible experiences that firms have had in the past of just not having their contracts honoured, of having property confiscated, of essentially being kicked out of their own venture. The Egyptian company, for instance, RSCOM, that set up the mobile network in North Korea, they never repatriated any profits and they essentially lost control of their business about three years ago. So the chances are not looking exactly rosy. But it's all part of um, an attempt by South Korea to increase ties. Is that generally welcome among the population, would you say? Among among South Koreans here in Seoul and, and elsewhere across the country, I think the idea of improving relations with North Korea is generally very popular. Just because people you know, were very scared last year when um, Donald Trump was tweeting about fire and fury and Kim Jong-un was issuing all sorts of threats. They're the first in the firing line, so the last thing they want is a, a ramping up of tensions. Um, but I think once people realise that all of this is going to come with high costs and it's going to be very difficult and they're probably the ones that are going to pay for it, they become markedly less enthusiastic. So I think it's a very tricky um, tightrope to walk for Moon. Lena, thank you very much. Thanks, Philip. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. And if you want to vote for Economist Radio in the Lovey Awards, you can. We've been nominated in three categories. Go to loveyawards.eu. I'm Philip Coggan. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.